Hello, I'm Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist, and welcome to our Stylist Live Sessions, a series of inspiring talks and thought-provoking conversations recorded live at our annual Festival of Inspiration. In today's deeply personal episode, you'll hear me in conversation with author Bernadine Evaristo on the topic of never giving up. Looking back on her life, Bernadine charts the rise of her success and the challenges she faced along the way to achieve her ultimate goal of becoming a Booker Prize winning author, plus the values and techniques it took her to get there. As this session is recorded live at the Truman Brewery, you might hear a bit of background noise. Here's Bernadine Everisto. Good afternoon, everyone. Wow, this crowd just keeps on growing. For those of you who might not have seen our earlier sessions, I'm Lisa Smazowski. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Stylist. And I really hope you've had a fabulous morning so far. A quote for you. Be wild, disobedient, and daring with your creativity. Take risks instead of following predictable routes. Those who play it safe do not advance our culture or civilization. I genuinely can't stop thinking about these incredible words written by our next speaker, Bernadine Evaristo, in her most recent book, Manifesto, which charts her journey from her childhood in Woolwich to becoming one of our most important and influential contemporary writers. That status was cemented when she won the Booker Prize in 2019 with her revolutionary novel, Girl, Woman, Other, that sold over a million copies. Alongside her writing, in the last 12 months alone, she's made the Black Power List, was made the president of the prestigious Royal Society of Literature, and won the Writer of the Year Award at Stylist's very own Remarkable Women Awards, the most important, I'm sure. Um, today, she's going to be talking about how she did life her way. Please join me in a huge Warm welcome to Bernadine Evaristo. Welcome. I mean, rock star writers. I love it. It's fabulous. Isn't that incredible crowd? Now, let's talk about that quote. Being wild, disobedient, and daring sounds exciting, but can be quite hard to do, (laughs) especially in times like this, which we're living in at the moment. How do you bring that to your own life? You know, I'm talking about that really in terms of creativity. You know, you don't want to play it safe as a writer. Well, I mean, people do, and they do very well when they play it safe. But I think it's really important, at least for some of us, to push the boundaries of the art form that that we're dealing with. And for me, it's literature. And to buck up against what's expected, because I feel that the stories I'm telling are from the outside. Mm. You know, I'm writing about the African diaspora. Um, I'm writing stories that haven't been told, that have been marginalized throughout the course of history. And so the reason I can do that is because I have the boldness, which is the wildness. Um, I'm being disobedient because I'm I'm being unorthodox. Mm. I'm not following any of the traditions. And, um, And that takes daring. To, to push the boundaries in the way that I do. And also, in terms of my life, I have led that kind of life as well. I have discovered that, Bernadine, <laughs> through reading your book. <laughs> I have. You know, I, um, I know people who um, I was at school with who are still with the, 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 the boy they met when they were 15. Yeah. They haven't lived in many houses. They've had maybe one or two main jobs. They got married, had children, and so on. And then when I think about my life... Mm. 
it's the opposite of that, you know. Um, for many years, I had a really precarious existence. I didn't earn much money. I didn't know where my money was going to come from, from one, from the start of the year to the end. Um, I, I didn't have my own property. I was in lots of different relationships. So, you know, in every way possible, my life was unconventional. Mm. Um, but I see that as a positive thing. I see that as part of the reason I was able to write, for example, Girl, Woman, Other. Yeah, I, and you see, really can see that influence of your own life, 20s and 30s, particularly rubbing off on the characters that you created in that novel. Yeah. So it is a reflection. I, I, I mean, my, my thought on reading your book was how rich your life had been, and not, not necessarily with that challenges, but a richness of a life well lived and experiences well traveled. Is that a fair, do, do, would you reflect uh, on yeah, it that way? Yeah, I think, it, I think I've had a very rich life. Um, I, <clears throat> well, I'm 63 now. Um, the book was published last year. <laughs> <Oy>. <laughs> Have you been applauded for your age? <laughs> you know, you know, we're living in a gerontophobic society, an ageist mm. society, where at every stage we're supposed to fear mm. getting older. You know, I know 25-year-olds who are panicking, mm. right? Because they're 25 and they haven't done whatever it is they think they're supposed to have done yeah. by that age. And then as we get older, we're just supposed to disappear quietly. And, and a lot of people do disappear quietly and we're very youth-obsessed. You know, we like people with great collagen and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> who, who haven't had faces that have been lived in. Mm. Um, and we're a very visual, an increasingly visual culture in this society, especially with social media. And so it's very easy to completely overlook people as they age. Mm. Um, and that, that has always been the case in this society. I don't think it's the case in every society where people are given respect as they age. And so one of the reasons I talk about my age, and I started to talk about it when I talked about Girl, Woman, Other, yeah. and I talk about it in this book, is because I want people to know that just because you reach a certain age doesn't mean to say it's the end of your life. And I do um, have, have encountered students who write some very geriatric character mm. who can barely walk. And then I say, how old is, how old is that character? And they say, oh, 45. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're 19. And for them, yeah. 45, that's it. Mm. You're one foot away from the, grave, from the grave. And so I think it's really important to own our age and just to live life as, as best we can, whatever age and stage we're at. Um, so that, that was a slight detour for the question. No, but you know what? I, actually, I'm going to detour slightly as yeah. well because I, I'm, I've been thinking and reflecting on this a lot in terms of the work that we do at Stylist and how you can pivot that perception because you're right, other cultures would definitely celebrate mm. experience, wisdom, maturity, and therefore with their age, but we do fear it. So I think... I, yeah, I'm, I'm commenting on your comment, really, but yeah. it's, I think it's a really interesting start of a new conversation that needs to be had. And I think it's up to older women also to talk about it. Mm. Um, because if, if we don't, if we don't break this myth that life ends when you're a certain age, then younger women have no role models. Mm. You know, yeah. and what, what happens is people, as they get older, hide their age and yeah. ne never mention it because they know that this is an ageist society and that it's gonna, they're going to be disadvantaged as a result. Mm. So when I wrote Girl, Woman, Other, I wanted women of every age in the book. Um, and the reason I was able to do that was because I was the age that I was. 
So I think very young women find it hard to write older people who are compass mentors. And unfortunately, yeah, because they think you get crazy as you get old. And then older, older, older female writers also write very young protagonists. Mm. Um, and if we look at television drama and films, we know that the leading actors are usually guys, and when they're not guys, they're young women. Mm. Um, and that's changing a little bit recently. It is, yeah, that movement is But it's still, it's still the latest, youngest, skinniest actor who is propelled to stardom, although, yeah, it's changed. If anyone's seen um, Wakanda Forever or The Woman King, and I urge you to go and see those yeah. absolute badass films, <laughs> uh, you will see women at different ages and stages and different body types, and, and they're really both incredible, important films. Um, so, yeah, it's a big issue and one that we all need to be part of, and we need to buck against, you know, a, a patriarchal system that, as we get older and wiser and more mature and have more experience, considers us less important. Mm. 100%. Listen, I've got about a thousand questions on this, and that's not my <laughs> job today. So I'm going to steer us back on track. Um, but I, 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 genuinely, I'm so interested in that topic. I'd love to, we should talk about that more another time. Um, I, going back to your creativity, and we were talking about the wild, disobedient, daring. Have, there are times in your book when obviously you haven't been able to be that because you haven't been yourself. You've been challenged or in a challenging situation. Have you found, how did you find the last few years? Did that affect you in a similar way or were you able to embrace your creativity? Yeah, I mean, the last, we've, we've, we've been living through unprecedented times, haven't we? And it's been such a struggle for us. And I think it's fair to say that, that nobody has been untouched by this because suddenly life as we knew it seemed to disappear. And we were at risk of death just by being around other people. Mm. And it's a tr it was a traumatic moment wherever you were in the world having to handle that. So I, I, you know, I felt that too. And for the first time, contemplated my own mortality in a way mm. that I hadn't before. But at the same time, um, because I was riding a wave, having won the Booker Prize, yeah. you know, I was also feeling very buoyant. Yeah. And, and it and allowed me to spend a couple of years at home doing a lot of Zoom events and, and just kind of leading quite a stable life, whereas I would have been like traveling the world, touring. Very true, and, yeah. and, you know, I would have kind of probably just found it quite exhausting. Yeah, it's, it's quite a juxtaposition of emotions going on mm. for you there, I imagine. We're, we're, t we're talking about today creating the life you really want. And the red thread, I guess, for the book for me is that writing is always that red thread. You were working so hard always. Mm. Your direction was, th the life you wanted was to be a writer. Do you feel that you've achieved the life you want? I have, you know, I do feel that I've achieved the life that I wanted. And, and I felt that before I won the Booker, but it's been intensified since that because, you know, so many things have come to me as a writer that I didn't have before. But the main thing with me and my career, which, well, I began in the arts in 1972 when I joined my local youth theatre, which was an amazing thing for me to do. It's my introduction to the arts. It was a safe space. It was almost like a community that I found there full of children who are outsiders. It was also where I discovered my imagination, my performance skills and so on. And so anybody with children shunt them off to, you know, 
arts workshops or, or, or a youth theatre because it's such an important thing and it gives you a sense of self-esteem and value. So that began when I was 12 and then I went to drama school and then from the age of 22 I was working in professional theatre. Um, I formed a theatre with two other people from my drama school called Theatre of Black Women and we formed that company because there was no work for us in 1982. Nobody mm -hmm. was interested in employing us. This was long before the Woman King, Wakanda Forever, you know, before mm -hmm. it became even possible for black women to be leading actors in billion dollar generating uh, blockbuster films. Yeah. We, were, we were considered so negligible that nobody would, would even notice that we were there. And one or two actors would break through, but generally speaking, nobody was interested. So we formed Theatre of Black Women, and for many years we ran the company and we got actors in, and you know, uh, it was a thriving alternative theatre company. And that was the beginning of me doing what I wanted to do. The alternative would have been to leave drama school at that time and look for work, not find it, and give up. Mm. And that's not what we did. We, we created our own work and we got funding from you know, the various arts funding bodies. And we didn't have a big audience, we didn't make a big impact, but we were important for the time because nobody else was doing that. We were the first company to do that. And then I uh, left theatre behind by the end of my 20s and I focused on writing. And I didn't know if anybody was going to publish me. So I, I spent years working on my material investing in it, thinking, well, I know that this is what gives me the most joy. Um, there is, at that time, there was, no, there was no market, there was no buzz around black British women writers or black British writers or even black writers, mm. apart from one or two American ones. And I thought, I have to invest in it. So I live very cheaply. I didn't take a job that would take me away from my writing. So I, I took a job as an arts coordinator and I had some freelance roles. And I would sometimes have like 10 pounds. Okay, we're talking now about the 90s. I would have 10 pounds to last me from like Thursday to Tuesday. Mm. So I had to live incredibly cheaply. I lived in very cheap accommodation and I invested in my creativity. And I actually loved it. I loved, I loved the creative process and discovering what it, what it would take to write my books. And then um, I didn't have a full-time job until I joined Brunel University London, where I teach creative writing until 2011. Mm. So for the whole of that time, my life was very precarious, but I was doing what I wanted to do. Mm. So that in itself was fulfilling, even though I didn't have a big readership, even though nobody was paying a lot of attention to me. But my career was progressing, but on a very small scale. And the breakthrough didn't happen until 2019. Mm. And the most important thing is that I had found the thing that I wanted to do. Initially, it was acting, then I left that behind, and then it was writing. And that was satisfying in itself. And then I believed in the idea of a bigger future for myself in my career than I had at that time. And that, well, part of that um, was helped by doing personal development courses. I mean, I, one of the things I was just reflecting on as you were talking there, because there's, I don't know if this is the right word, but a single-mindedness, you, you made mm. choices. There were lots of opportunities to take different paths, I guess. But you made choices actively through your life to follow your passion 
I guess, to a degree. And of course, there were deviations. Is that something that you, a, a trait you see in yourself? Is that something you work on, or is that just who you are? I think it, it's who I, who I am. Yeah. And I think it's a kind of selfishness as well. That I, I mean, probably for the same reason I didn't have children, I don't want to self-sacrifice. You know, and I just, when I would think about taking other jobs to, to support myself, which would take me away from writing, I just thought, I can't do it. I have to do the thing that I want to do. And also, I've always been writing about the African diaspora. That is what I care about, and that's what I write about in all different kinds of ways. Mm. And it is a huge landscape to work with, of course, because, you know, over a billion people, 50-something countries in Africa, 30-something countries in the Caribbean. I mean, it's massive, and people sometimes think, oh, but that's very limiting. Why, why do they think that's limiting? <laughs> no more limiting than writing white books, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I had a mission to, to explore that. So it wasn't just even about me being creative. It was about me knowing that I needed to be a voice in the world as a writer exploring the African diaspora mm. because there weren't many of us doing it and I felt passionate that these stories needed to get out yeah, there. Yeah, so that was an active decision for you. Yeah. That was like, this, is, this will be my area of focus. Yes. And that's, did you expect when you started writing that you would end up winning the book? I mean, was that ever on your scope? Were you like, I'm going to get there? Did you have it, it was, ambition? It was, because I, I was doing these personal development courses, um, some of them from America, um, but there was something called Mind Store, which I don't think he does public courses anymore, but he used to do these public courses where they were mind-blowing, because he would say, look, what if you could have anything you want in your life, in your relationships, your career, your finances? And you'd go into the seminar and you'd think, wow, nobody said that to me before because often people are telling you what you can't have. And, and you also limit yourself mm. because of where your what your background is and, and the conversations you have that um, exist around you. And so he said, what if you can have anything that you want? What if you can live in the house of your dreams, have the career that you want, so on? And, and then he would give you tools to realize the, 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 the vision that you then created for yourself. And so when I published my second book, Lara, which was published in 1997, I just thought, well, I, could, I, I knew the literature world at this stage, and I thought, well, the Booker Prize is the biggest prize for the novel in this country and has a global impact, so I want to win the Booker Prize. And so I, I, I visualized winning it, and I wrote affirmations to win it. Okay, and that's interesting, yeah. I spent quite a long time repeating the affirmations. I had it very much in my mind even though my book, Lara, wasn't eligible for it, somehow I thought, this is the prize that I need to get. And then after a few years, I stopped thinking about it. But I think the seeds had been yeah. sown. Yeah. And, and I wasn't, I always have to say to people that I wasn't writing in order to win the Booker Prize because that's disingenuous, that's an inauthentic. Um, and also, it's a ridiculous thing because you don't know what's going to win the Booker Prize because yeah. every year there are five new judges. I was going to say, the judge, yeah, you can't they predict They change that, every yeah. year. But I think what it did was it gave me a sense of... It just helped me commit to what I was doing with the realisation that maybe one day I would break through in a big way. That's, that's how I describe it. And then, and then when I did win the Booker Prize, I dug out my old affirmations and I was like, oh, my God. That happened. 
And I know, I know a lot of people won't even think that. Yeah. You know, they, they were, I mean, especially not if they don't have anything eligible for it. They, they won't think that it's for them. I'm mm. sure there are lots of writers in this country today who probably think, oh, yeah, well, Bernadine won it, but yeah, because she wrote Girl, Woman, Other, right? But I'm never going to win it. Um, but what if you were to think, well, maybe I will. Mm. Or maybe I will have an incredible breakthrough in my career at some point. Why cut off the possibilities of that? And also, if you indulge in you know, negative self-talk, which is, I think, embedded in this society, mm. if you tell yourself all the time, I'll never have this, I'll never have this, I shouldn't go for this because I won't get it, da 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 then that will, come, that will come true. Because you will talk yourself out of doing the things that you really want to do. Because you will second-guess the outcome, which is that you won't get it. Mm. And, and that's something that I learned not to do all those years ago, to always expect the best outcome. And when, when the best outcome doesn't materialize, to bounce back. And then, as I, I teach my students this, and then more, more recently I say to them, actually, bounce back in the act of falling. So as you feel yourself going down, you know, oh my God, I'm so upset, this didn't happen, just bounce back. Mm. Just mentally bounce back so that you don't hit the ground. It's harder to get up when you hit the ground. And, and so positive, positive mental attitude, positive self-talk, these are the tools that I have been um, living by for a very long time now. I mean, it's, it's incredible to hear because actually I don't think you hear women say this enough about having a single-minded attitude about going for your ambitions and your goals. And I think we talk about visualization more than perhaps probably you were um, groundbreaking in your, your self-development at that time. But I think, you know, what, what, what is your reflection on why women might be particularly hard on themselves? Earlier, Ellen de Botton asked everyone who was a people pleaser to put their hand up, a large proportion of the room put that up. You're, you're talking about something very different, actually, which is about pleasing yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think people are also disingenuous. You know, when, they, become, when they, they reach a successful point, they say, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah. how, did, how did that so happen? Lucky. How so did lucky. How did I become a global yeah. superstar? <laughs> you know, how did I marry a global superstar? I don't know how <laughs> it happened. Um, uh, you know, someone like Rod Stewart, you know, we know what he goes for. Do you know what I mean? He does, doesn't just fall in love with, some of you won't remember, but he's had many of them. <laughs> he, he doesn't just fall in love with a certain type of leggy blonde, right? Yeah. That's what he wants. Um, so, so I think there is that to it, but also that you are supposed to hide your ambition. And until I won the booker, I hid my ambition. Yeah. So it was only when I won it, I was like, well, folks, you know, the, I sowed these seeds a very long time ago. But up until that point, I wouldn't, I, and I still don't, and I have more ambition now, you know, more goals. I, would, I wouldn't say to people, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get this, I'm, you know, I'm going to go for it, because they would just tell me, no, you won't. Mm. The, the natural reaction, most people in this country, if you say, I'm going to do this, they'll say, no, no, it won't happen. And before they've even thought about the possibility of you achieving this thing, they'll just go, nah, it won't happen. Yeah. Simply because they, they don't know what your life is going to be. Um, but, but I think it's very easy to, to drag each other down. Mm. And so my strategy was to hide my ambition. Um, so that people wouldn't know what my goal was. And, and also not to surround myself with people who had a negative attitude to life because they will drag you down even though they don't know what your, your sort of secret ambitions are. Mm. Um, so that single-minded purpose 
is something that we all need to have. Absolutely, we need to have it. Of course, people are going to juggle families and relationships and all, family, you know, all kinds of other factors, but that doesn't stop you having a single-minded purpose to achieve what you want to achieve. But the other thing to say about that is that I am also a very much a community person. So I have been an activist setting up diversity inclusion projects for many years, for decades, in fact. So at the same time as my career trajectory where I've been fulfilling myself creatively, I've also been creating projects and opening the doors for other writers of color, artists of color, and people from underrepresented communities. Mm. That has been very much part of what I do. And that is also a great driver yeah. to know that, yes, you're doing it for yourself because basically we are all selfish, mm. you know, if we're honest, but you, but you are also helping other people at Taking the same time. It, yeah. And that, that, that has also meant that I know that I can enjoy what I have today because I know I didn't shut the door behind me. Yes, yeah. And, that, you know, and this is it. These are the things we can all do. We can all play a role in that, I yeah. think, as well. Um, you say in your book, your um, direction was challenged at times. What have been the biggest challenges for you? Because I guess it would be easy for us to go, wow, she's strong and resilient yeah, and amazing. Yeah. But actually, you, you did deviate off the path. Yes, so the biggest challenge is self-doubt. Yeah. You know, which there's nothing wrong with that, but you shouldn't allow that to overwhelm your confidence. And I think all along the way, there'd be moments of self-doubt. Um, and then I was in a really toxic relationship for five years where I was completely derailed by somebody who sucked all the energy and mm. the fastiness out of me and turned me into this docile, passive, almost silent person who was completely subjugated by their wishes and their mm. desires. And if I'd have stayed with that person, I wouldn't be writing today, which is why I always say, you have to be really careful who you have in your life. Mm. And if, if you have a, you know, a mission as a creative artist and somebody is undermining your confidence or even trying to stop you being creative, then you must leave that relationship. But I stayed in that relationship for five years mm. and eventually I was able to leave. And then it took many years to get my power back. Yeah. It took many years. And so I spent many years um, enjoying living on my own because this person would talk 24-7. <laughs> don't live with somebody who talks 24-7. <laughs> and don't be that person who talks 24-7. Because <laughs> the, the people you're with have no time to think, no breathe, to make up their own mind. Um, and I was just like in a really peaceful home, a flat, on my own, and writing, and just really enjoying that. Um, regaining my sense of self and agency, but also recovering. Mm. Recovering from the trauma of the relationship, which people didn't understand, because before I went into that relationship, I was 25, they saw me as this powerful, feisty young woman who was going out for what she wanted and stuff. And then over the years, very slowly, it was coercive control. I was somebody else and also mm. They, they were kept away from me. Mm. Um, so that was, that was the biggest obstacle mm. that I, I faced. But then because of that, looking at everything through a positive prism, which is what I tried to do with Manifesto, because I don't present myself as a victim, yeah, I think I don't. was complicit in that dynamic. Um, it made me stronger, you know, as Kanye West said. You know, what, is the, what are the lyrics? 
Anyway, it makes you stronger. Adver it's a cliche, but adversity makes you stronger. And so the, the sort of powerful person I became was as a result of that period of losing myself. I mean, it, it, that is an incredible optimism. So do you think that is perhaps your superpower here, that <laughs> ability to like, see the positive, the learning? So, the... I think it's a choice. Yeah. I think it's a choice, and I don't want to um, undermine or disparage any of the, the tragedy and the trauma and the suffering and the pain that people go through. And I'm not imposing what I believe and my practice onto other people's ideas of how they should live their lives. But for me, I think it, w it the past happens, okay? So things happen to us in the past, but it is in the past. And sometimes we have to live with the consequences of that in very real ways. But we can also change our attitude to it. Mm. And we can see it as something that has empowered us as opposed to something that has debilitated us. Um, and I think I will see it as something that has empowered me, even though it may take a while to reach that stage. Mm. And I, I, no, I have people in my life, friends, who have had the most terrible childhoods. The, you know, you can imagine the most terrible child, childhoods imaginable, but they are the most formidably powerful people um, because they have somehow risen above that. And I'm mm. not saying everybody can or everyone should, but, and they are also human and vulnerable and complex and all of those things, but they have used that to transform themselves. And that is a way through for some people. Mm. If, you, if you were sharing, I mean, it's hard to crystallize that, I'm sure, but is, is that what you would be recommending to people as they take their kind of journey through life, like to try and turn things on their head to find the positive? Yeah, well, that's, that's one, of, one of the sort of strategies that, I have, that we have available to us. I think it's very easy to feel sorry for ourselves. I'm, I'm not a self-pitying person, and I'm a bit intolerant of self-pitying people, and I've known quite a few self-pitying people who are like broken record, you know, oh, this is my life because of this, this is my life because of this, and I don't think it gets us anywhere. You know, you just remain stuck. So what if you were to look at it differently, whatever it is that you're self-pitying about, and say, okay, well, that happened then, this is my life now, I don't need to emotionally be stuck in that moment from the past. And if you need therapy, get therapy, you know, but I think it is a choice that we can make. Mm. Now, we have somehow charged through half an hour. I don't know how that happened, because I got through one of my seven cards <laughs> through that time. <laughs> so many interesting things to talk about. I'm going to, a final look to the future. You talked about you have goals and ambitions. And one of the things I that's sort of going through my mind as you've been speaking is really that idea of daring to dream. That's, that's a great takeaway, I think, as well. So where do you dream next? So, so one of the things about dreaming is that I don't tell people. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, Back to you keeping it to yourself. I keep it to myself, but I am at a stage where I have to think, what is, what is the impossible dream that I, for me at this stage, what is the thing that if, I, if I'm taking a negative look at it that I think I'd never get, yeah. or that will never happen? And that is the thing that I'm focusing on. So mysterious, she got <laughs> me at the end. Um, listen, honestly, so much Thank to you. take away from your conversation. So inspiring. The book is incredible. I'm not just 
plugging it because Bernadine's here. It's been a, a, an incredible read and so much to take away and your, your spirit is very inspiring. So thank, thank you, you very much. As I'm sure you can hear, I absolutely loved Bernadine's session. I really wasn't fibbing when I said I could have spoken to her all day. It's just so refreshing to hear a woman talk so candidly about ambition, self-prioritisation and how she manifested her dream. I hope you enjoyed my conversation just as much. And if you do want to share your thoughts, visit stylist.co.uk or follow us at Stylist Magazine on social. And don't forget to subscribe to Stylist Live Sessions to hear more of our inspiring live talks. We've got The One Show's Alex Jones, author and philosopher Alan de Botan, comedian Adam Kay, Fern Cotton and many more. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>